Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on BlogTalkRadio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. If you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on BlogTalkRadio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Oh, need a minute to get something to write with? Well, don't worry. I'll give the number again right after the commentary. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Know who you are and whose you are, for it determines the course of your destiny. Good storytelling is timeless. Author Manda Raquel Webb packs her goodie bag of stories of unabashed honesty, American history, and essential life lessons. From the red clay of Georgia to the majestic mountains of West Virginia to the federal enclave of Washington, D.C., Four short stories poignantly demonstrate the resilience of the human spirit over adversity. From Dawson's, Georgia, 1939, where a dangerous run-in with the Ku Klux Klan teaches a lesson of self-worth. To Albany, Georgia, 1961, in the midst of the Civil Rights Albany Movement, 
A teacher is blackballed in her home state of Georgia for trying to get African Americans to register to vote and is sent to teach on an Indian reservation. To Beckley, West Virginia, 1948, where a coal miner's family tries to survive when the sole provider's foot is severed in a mining accident. To Washington, D.C. in 2012, where a young woman fights the power structure in a David versus Goliath story against the backdrop of the most political city in America, the nation's capital. Author of Red Clay Dirt and Mountains, Manda Webb, welcome back to A Measure of Truth. Thank you. Thank you. Woo, I got to catch my breath. I was jamming so hard to the music, you know. Oh. That's a nice intro, Michael. That's a oh. nice intro. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, special thanks to my co-host of Turn It Up, who did that for me. And uh, I got to say, Manda, uh, and I, I said it earlier today as well, I went to your book signing and, you know, I was there for support. Thank you. Ended up just enjoying myself immensely. And was so so just um, overpowered by your your reading from your book, your poetry, as well as your your acting chops as well. <laughs> well, thank you. It was nice to see you and my mother there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I really appreciate you coming through, Michael. <laughs> well, you know, this is such an interesting um, book, and the way it was written, it, it kind of you know helps us to all understand that you know there might be some stories that we know from our own family history that we might need to find a way to share. And tell us a little bit about how you came about to write this book. Well, it had been, uh, Red Clay Dirt and Mountains has been bubbling, <laughs> bubbling <laughs> for a few years. And, um, you know, from a creative standpoint, I may have an idea, and until the characters start whipping my tail, I don't really do anything about it. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I decided that I wanted to pay homage to my ancestors, and I wanted to um, do something that would help actually help to shape me um, as an artist, as a person, um, on my journey, on my journey of awareness and truth. Um, and so I would hear stories growing up um, from my mother's side and my father's side, little bits and pieces of stories. And I said, you know, this is some really interesting stuff. And the more I tried to find out about it, especially on my mother's side, that's where the red clay comes from. The red clay dirt represents Dawson, Georgia, which is where my mother is from. And Southerners have a way of keeping things close to the chest or close to the vest, as they say. And they will go to their grave with secrets. Mm. So I heard this really interesting story of how my great aunt, um, um, helped save her father from getting taken by some townsmen um, by running through cornfields to get his father and coming back, and he chased him off his land with a, with a, uh, a double-barrel shotgun. And the more I tried to find out about it, the more close-lit my family gets. But it was a mm-hmm. really, really important story because, you know, it, it told me that part of who I am is a family that's not afraid to back down, you know, that I come from good stuff and my family mm-hmm. has chops. And I just didn't understand why more of these stories aren't being told to our young people so that they know who they are and who they are and where they've come from. Um, so I decided to create a what-if scenario and um, took a few of these stories and created a story around them in a, his, in a historical context. So um, the Albany uh, 
Georgia story is based on my great-grandmother who did have to, um, she was blackballed from the state of Georgia for trying to get black people to register to vote and was sent to an Indian reservation for several years um, until they passed a Brown versus Board of Education. And then she was allowed to come back to Georgia and teach. But, I mean, that was amazing. I mean, this woman, you know, back in the day took a bus to an Indian reservation and she it was still standing. You know, she didn't let that fear um, get in the way. So I, I based it historically around the Albany movement. And um, my grandfather, who had worked in a coal mine, got his foot cut off. You would think that's the end of the world. But no, he took his family, he moved, and they survived. And mm-hmm. he still stood. And as a result of Beckley, West Virginia, which is where my dad's from, and Red and uh, Dawson, Georgia, I was raised in the Silver Spring, um, Washington, Silver Spring, Washington metropolitan area. And I've grown up in the most political city in the world. And the last story was a culmination of me and growing up and the power structure here in Washington, D.C. And it takes place primarily in the boardroom. But within those four walls, I demonstrate that there's more than just the four walls that many people in Washington, D.C. will stay in, their little area, their pocket of the neighborhood. This is such a rich and diverse city with a tapestry of so many different cultures that we can explore and experiment, and we don't. So this story demonstrates how someone can um, actually look at a city, look at the city through different eyes from someone else's perspective and how they can learn and how they can grow to appreciate what Washington, D.C. has to offer. Wow. Wow. And, you know, this this book in itself as well is um, one of your many, many works. But um, this one really helps. I think um, a lot of your books have a a lot of you in it. But by by being able to know your background and your history and understand where you come from, it helped me to really understand you a lot more. And um, and again, I I was very impressed by your um, (laughs) Your, your acting and your changing of voices and dialect as you went through uh, each character's uh, part of the story. Um, yeah, that that was well worth it. I think we're going to have to do another show later on where I'll take some excerpts from that recording and then play them back for our listeners. And um, tell us a little bit about some of your other projects as well, because you're, you're doing quite a bit and um, you're, you're still working on the movie 733, correct? Correct. Uh, we are in the process of um, signing a, an agreement with the finder whose sole job is to go out and find us some money. And so <laughs> we are hoping that um, we can do that this fall so that we can shoot in the spring um, and be able to um, get a director's cut by the end of the summer, first fall, and then start entering the festivals in the beginning of 2014, starting with uh, Sunday. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, I was happy to see um, the many works that you've produced and your books of poetry. And I I just want people to just, um, as a reminder, um, understand exactly where you come from with your your poetry and some of your your other skill sets as well. Tell us a little bit about your history. First of all, you started here, and you've done quite a few things. You've been in uh, media. You've been on television (laughs) as a real estate agent. Give us just a quick synopsis of um, your your growth to where you are today. Um, let's see, thirty seconds or less. <laughs> I was we got home. more time let's than that. <laughs> yeah, um, I 
No, I, I did. I received a um, a full four-year athletic scholarship to the University of Rhode Island, and um, I had played sports since um, junior high school, um, team sports, okay. and uh, came out, uh, graduated, and oh, worked and, for. That, what sport was that? <laughs> oh, well, I, <laughs> it was basketball. It was basketball. Oh, okay. And then midway, um, I switched to track. Uh-huh. So, um, I, you know, I went to Montgomery Blair, oh, go Blazers, and we had a winning <laughs> record. And when I went to the University of Rhode Island, we had a losing record, and I was not happy with that, and I did not know how to manage that. So wow. I asked to switch. <laughs> you know, America loves a winner, Michael, and so do I. Yeah. <laughs> I switched the track, had a great had a great career there, and um, I pledged Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, which was really fun. And I, I came back. <laughs> I had to give a shout out to my stores. And I uh, came back and worked for uh, first woman mayor of Washington, D.C., Sharon Pratt, and worked for City Cable 16, uh, Office of Cable Television, Office of the Mayor, where I had, had a great time. And um, then I spent the next well, several wait, years. I and what did you do for them? Come on. <laughs> Come on, Manda. Don't be modest now. <laughs> I, oh my gosh. I was I did a little bit of everything. Um uh I started off as a traffic coordinator. Um mm-hmm. and so I was responsible and Michael, I don't know if you remember back then they had those big to recorded tapes you were sticking to death yeah. for programming. Okay. All right. And uh we thought <laughs> we were doing something when it was electronic, you know, I would have to program it and so and if if the if the show didn't come on the air I had to run to the station to try to figure out what went wrong. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. But no, I I did that and then I started doing some reporting, um, covering live uh events and so that D C constituents could kinda of know what government services could do for them. Um, we with Jerry Phillips, who's still on NBC, uh, WRC uh, TV, uh, had a morning show with him where I did the news, and then I started to um, produce features. They kind of just let me flex a little bit as I grew, which was awesome to be in a small mm-hmm. shop that believed in, in me and my capabilities, and just and, and the sky was the limit. There was no, well, you can't do this because you're, you know, 19 years old or whatever. Um, <laughs> and so I was able to to. Um, get some really good uh, boots-on-the-ground experience, learn a lot about the politics and the behind-the-scenes in Washington, um, how to manage it, and then how to help other folks manage it. So um, that was a good, that was a really, really good time. And um, and as I said, I spent the next 10 years, I guess, trying to uh, <laughs> chase the American dream um, and, and, and do the Joneses by uh, working in the mortgage finance and um uh, I was okay in it, um, not not too passionate about it, but I was okay. Um, I worked at uh, Wells Fargo Home Mortgage in Fannie Mae, and I became a licensed real estate agent in 2003. So I've pretty much come full circle in the past few years as I as I kind of question, you know, who am I? Um, right, and, right. W- w- what do I want to be? Ultimately? And tell them a little bit and, about the TV mm-hmm. show, too, because people will remember that. I know that. I used to watch that show. You mean which show? Um, the one... Think? The um, oh, the real estate show. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, um, I, I worked uh, for a couple of years as a featured real estate agent on um, HGTV shows um, designed to sell and uh, what was the other one? Oh, <laughs> get it. <laughs> no, get it. So I was having a senior moment. No, get it. So, and, oh. um, 
and so yeah, that that was fun. We got a, got a, had an opportunity to meet some great people and um, and uh, get kind of get, get my footing back in the industry, uh, entertainment industry, if you will, uh, even though it was reality based. So now I'm, I'm back trying to figure out, you know, <laughs> what I want to do, <laughs> who I want to be. Uh, but but I, I'm able to. I feel really blessed, though, Michael, that I'm able to kind of live my dreams out loud, as I say, by continuing to create um, and to uh, just really explore my passion. And uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, eventually, the, the ultimate goal is to marry my passion with my finances so that I can make money <laughs> doing, doing what I love. <laughs> great, great. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you were prepared for this, and I'm always throwing something at you that you weren't ready okay. for, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> You did a a poem that was an an ode to black women. Um very very powerful mm. poem. Um I I can only remember your description of it before you and, and I can't remember the um the title of it itself. But um could you read that for us? Sure. Yeah, if you need a minute I can go to break and come back or Oh well, um, it's, let's see. Yeah, it's actually this poem um, is called "Black Woman Redefined." Yes, and um, I named it. Uh, one of my sorority sisters and good friends, Sophia and Jelly Nelson, wrote a book last year um, called "Black Woman Redefined: um, Finding Love and Fulfillment in the Age of Michelle Obama," and and it is her sole mission to debunk the myths and the stereotypes that have um, existed for many many years about black women, and. Um, it, <laughs> She challenged me to, to write something uh, to that effect. And, and I thought, you know, I said, well, when I think of the black woman that I know, um, let me, Michael, let me ask you, how would you define a black woman? How do you define a black woman? Well, I know it's your show. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. But here, here's the thing, though. A, a black woman is just, she's so flexible in um, her ability to adapt to her surroundings. Most people in most cultures have that to cling to, but a black woman has always found a way to make do. And um, that's how my mom was and, and most of the strong women that I know, and I heard that in your poem, and, and it was, you know, it was something that made me proud as well because, you know, that was it. You know, and I guess I had to hear it from a woman to really understand it to its full extent, but... Um, I, I I think you did an awesome job at this point. You know, it's something that should be on a monument somewhere. I mean, I, I, you know, I get a little overzealous <laughs> about your work anyway, but that's what I felt. I was Thank like, you. wow, wow, and I was just blown away. So, Thank you. Yeah. I will definitely share. And, and I just thought before I read it, though, I thought about um, long and hard about how black women have been portrayed in, in, mm. in history. Uh, from Hollywood standpoint, and what we've been awarded, and I thought about Hattie McDaniel, who got the first the first black woman to win an Oscar, as you know, kind of a mammy figure, um, and gone with the win. And mm-hmm. then I thought, um, let's see, oh yeah, Halle Berry got an Oscar uh, for being, you know, portraying a down and out um, poor woman who fell in love with the man who murdered her husband. Um, and then I thought about, let's see, Monique who received an Oscar for Precious, where she was a bitter, vile child abuser. And Mm. then I thought that the first black woman to be on primetime network in a show, Kerry Washington, in Scandal, which is a beautiful show, very good show. And 
she is portrayed as a wonderfully powerful black woman, but she's sleeping with the president. Mm. So I have to ask myself, are these types of images, is, is this really who I am? So I, I say to myself that Hollywood has it twisted, and I, I'll go ahead and share this poem with you, Michael Fordham, and the listeners of A Measure of Truth. And this is the truth, Ruth. <laughs> 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 um, and I'll just say that you know Washington, D.C., is the birthplace of the black woman redefined movement started by Sophia and Jelly Nelson, Esquire. We are who we say we are. We are not Sapphire. We are not Mammy. We are not downtrodden. We are not less than. We are redefined. How do you redefine a black woman full of grace, wisdom for the ages, timeless beauty etched on her face, turning the pages of a history contrived with negative images, perception, and lies to the now, a future, a permanent place in time of a true black woman, organically redefined. Black woman, do you know who you are, plucked by God from the heavens, rare and beautiful, bright as the North Star? When others look upon you, they see diamonds. You see lumps of coal. What will it take for you to feel whole, reach new heights, surpass impossible goals, and finally realize your power, recognizing God in your soul? Black woman, why do you succumb to the myth? as your mental master cracks the whip on your inbred insecurities. Even though you nursed their children, raised generations, and carried heavy loads that broke you down to your knees, black woman, it is your turn to shine as you thoughtfully, purposefully take time to redefine you from the inside out, your essence, despite historic convalescence of mammy, sapphire, and nappy-headed hoes systematically undermined by those who define your role, relegating you to the bottom of every statistical totem pole, you are redefining from the core of your very soul, single-handedly in charge of getting your story told, jump-starting a new session. After years of oppression, depression, compression, regression, you are a regal being standing tall as you successfully destroy the wall of a system put into place to keep you reeling while other women talk about breaking the glass ceiling. You, my sister are financially and economically kneeling with lower salaries than anyone, truth be told, and consistently top the census chart as head of household. Black woman, sometimes you are your own worst enemy when all you have to do is release and be free. Release negative stereotypes. Release skin, dark versus light. Release complaining that nothing is fair. Release your obsession with good and bad hair. Release the fear that you'll never get married. Release the guilt from aborted seeds you carry. My sisters, stop searching for that with which you were born. Stand tall, rise, for you have come through the storm. You are entrepreneurs, rainmakers, more than ready for prime time. Black woman, you are unequivocally, undoubtedly redefined. Expressing love from within where the sun always shines, black woman, whole, dynamic, positively redefined. Black woman, my cup runneth over with fulfillment and love, giving thanks to our Father in the heavens above that we're made in his image, comparable to no other, loving us with us love, arms open wide, embracing one another. A kaleidoscope of unique hues and shades. Thank God, I say thank God, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. Black woman, face to the sky, warmed by the sun, Hugged by the night, 
embraced by all humankind, you are hereby officially redefined. Wow. Thank you. Wow. That's my friend Manda West. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome, Manda, really. Thank really. You. Wow. Wow. I know I'm going to get a lot of comments on that one. And how long did it take you to actually um, to write the, this particular piece? Um, well, let's see. Sophia put me on a deadline, so it took about three days. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It took about three days, and I tweaked it maybe a couple mm-hmm. more days. But she said, I have to get this to my editor. And mm-hmm. if you know Sophia... Right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't disappoint her. <laughs> ah, that's right. So, that's yeah. right. And um, so this was already in you. It, it just it took was. someone to to sort of prod you and to to say, you know, this is what I want from you. To to yeah, and it's an Absolutely. awesome piece. Awesome piece. Thank you. And just to think that you you never know if it were not for Sophia asking for this would you have yeah. ever actually written this poem so and that's just phenomenal between two black women that's just just amazing for me um i i just want to um give people an opportunity to to, to find um your website now before we forget about that and okay. talk a bit about um, some of your other poetry books right after that. So tell us where um, people who want to hear more and find out more about Manda Webb can actually um, connect with you. Okay. Well, um, my website is mondawebb.com, and I'm on Twitter at Manda Webb. I'm on Facebook, uh, author and poet Manda Webb, my um, page, fan page, and I'm on Pinterest, um, so just Google me and you can find me. <laughs> yeah, and you're doing well. You're coming up on the first page there, Manda. That's awesome. You know, Pinterest is the number three social media site already. It's amazing. I think because, Michael, it is such a visual medium and we are such mm-hmm. a visual society. And um, I don't know what it is about when once pictures are put on Pinterest that they just seem to glow. <laughs> yeah. Everything just looks beautiful. So um <laughs> I try not to get, get too caught up um with all the social media vehicles that are out there. But I think I think that's a good one. Um it's low key and you don't feel bombarded with a you know I just think it's a, a, a nice vehicle to share with. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. um the interesting thing about it is when you double click on a photo you like it takes you to the original source. So that allows you to be able to find more of the same or either that, you know, you know, be aware mm-hmm. of a, a place where you can, um, you know, find content that you're already interested in. Um, Absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit about <laughs> one of your books of poetry, and let's discuss a, a few others as well. But let's start with Life is Like a Soul Train Line. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you got some explaining to do. <laughs> I got some explaining to do. Yes, I mean yeah. life is like a soul train line. I mean that gets me every time I see it. Um, <laughs> tell everyone how you came up with a title um, for a book of poetry with, with the name "Life is Like a Soul Train Line." You know, it's funny, Michael. I um, I originally I wanted another title. I wanted I wanted to have my sophomore effort be something that would uh, demonstrate my growth and my uh, feeling a lot more comfortable with my voice. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I had an experience when I was in Hawaii in 2004 swimming with the dolphins. So oh. I I was convinced, okay, this book is going to be called Swimming with Dolphins. I can't even remember the name, <laughs> the rest of it. And, um, you know, my mother and a lot of people that I go to advice want to uh, enthrall with it. Swimming with dolphins? People don't read poetry anyway. They're darn sure not going to read a book called Swimming with Dolphins. <laughs> But I'm like, well, that's the point where I realized that, like, Monda, and, and so somehow, and I can't remember exactly when it happened, but I, I, I was, um, uh, there was a, there's a lot, there's just so much going on in the world, and it, it's so easy to get caught up in the negative, caught up in, oh, we're in a failing economy, and oh, you know, just woe is me. And I said, mm-hmm. but you know what? I started when I was writing this book, I was staying up late and watching TV One where they were playing, they, they played all the reruns from Soul, um, Soul Train. And, you know, I said, wow, you know, those folks are happy. And whenever, you know, people are in a Soul Train line, I have not seen one person with a turned down face in a Soul Train line. When you're in a Soul Train <laughs> line, are you happy? Trying to figure out what day you're going to do next? So, I mean, really, it is just, it's like swimming in the ocean. It's a happy experience, right? So I came up with this, this whole theme of embracing the happy, that no matter yeah. what happens, no matter what's going on in your life that is not good or negative, it's either a teachable moment, but it's also only temporary because you've got to embrace the happy. If you think happy, you be happy. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, life life's kind of like a soul train line, right? <laughs> and so... In it, even though there's a, a lot of um, serious material in it, I thought about sectioning um, the the different parts of the book with different dances from Soul Train. So, oh, <laughs> yeah. So there's the there's the robot, which is a political section because mm-hmm. so many of us are like robot robots when it comes to politics. Mm-hmm. We kind of do what we're told to do or instead of really thinking about it and doing our own research, um, there's the prep. So there's, you remember the prep? I know you remember the prep, Michael. I can see you doing the prep <laughs> in my third eye. I see it. <laughs> so, and the prep is to, you know, get you ready for life. Um, there's the slow dance, which is, you know, a love section. And I broke it up because there's so many different types of love. So you've got the butterfly, you know, first love, butterfly effect. And then you've got the bump, and I, I, no explanation is needed for that one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got the running man, and the running man deals with unrequited love. I have quite a few poems there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so and the final section is called the good foot, which is a spiritual section. So you want to do the good foot, you know, uh, to make sure you look good in, in, in God's eyes or whomever you may worship. So, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're, therein lies the origin. Of life is like a soul train line. <laughs> All right. So now that people know, they have a bit more clarity. <laughs> and, and tell us a little bit, too, about your other books of poetry. And uh, are there other poems as well that are included with um, Red Clay, Dirt, and Mountains? Um, yes. Well, let's see. Let me. You have a two-part question. I'm going to answer it in two parts. Sure. Uh, the first one <laughs> is uh, my first book of poetry is called A Peek Into My Soul, and I uh, published that in 2001. And it's just a collection of poems that uh, represent life experiences um, and always grow, grow, always grow. 
and um, Red Clay Dirty Mountain. I guess no matter what I write, I have you know the poetry has to it just it insists on making an appearance. So uh, you you have just heard um, Black Woman Redefined, but I also um, before every short story I have a poem that introduces you or segues into that story. And uh, one of the poems is on YouTube, um, which is called uh, The New Revolution Will Not Be Televised Either, where right. politics mm-hmm. meets pop culture. And it's dedicated to Gil Scott here and, and his The New Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And I, I just um, I got kind of, when I think about, again, everything that's going on, we're in this fast-paced technological society. And, I mean, we're growing in leaps and bounds technically, but I feel like we're regressing um, from a humanitarian standpoint. We are not um, just the average people would rather text you than call you. Um, Our social skills are are dwindling, I believe, because we're so caught up in, you know, I mean, I'm addicted, I tell you, to, to, to our smartphones. But regardless of that, there is a bigger, bigger thing going on, and that thing is a revolution that is economic, which I think by the time it's over, this country will be a country of haves and have not. But see, we're so distracted by all this other stuff and these reality shows that have us hooked on nothingness so that we can decompress that we're not paying attention to the economics of it all. So primarily the new revolution will not be televised is, 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 is a call, is my call saying, look, my fellow Americans, wake up. You can play. You can enjoy all the stuff, all the fun te- technological advances, but at the same time, make sure your house is, is in order, uh, spiritually as well as financially. So that's what the new, Revolu- the new revolution will not be televised is about. Wow. That's great. And, um, you know, a lot of our young people, they don't know about Gil Scott Heron. And at the time when that song came out, just how controversial it was. I mean, you know, um, I know for a time my parents wouldn't allow me to listen to it on the radio. Really? Yeah, because, um, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people saw it as something that was inciting riot. But it was uh, it was uh, it was a commentary on our time, you know. And, Absolutely. Um, Right. And, um, Absolutely. And I have a lot of respect for Gil Scott-Heron, Gil Scott-Heron because um, anyone who's a truth speaker, a measure of truth, kiki-ki, um, <laughs> I, 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 I admire um, because oftentimes um, people don't want to hear the truth or, as you know, famous movie lines says, you know, you can't handle the truth. Whatever the case may be, anyone who is, is bold enough and brave enough to step out and to tell the truth, then, you know, they get my vote. They get my vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get my vote, Michael. Oh, thank you, Manda. You're welcome. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to bring on our next guest in a bit. And I was okay. just wondering, can you hang around for a little bit? And, um, sure. Yeah, sure. yeah. I'd love I'll, to hear her. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I like her already. I don't even know her. Viola! Yeah, yeah. Well, when you get a chance to really get to know her, you'll love her even more. And um, what we'll do is we'll take a quick little break, and um, we'll come right back, and um, we'll go right in with um, Viola in just a bit. Thanks, Michael. 911 emergency wake-up call. I awake, 245 wide awake, to write this piece, and I write... 
911 emergency wake up call calamity got the best of me why can't we see emergency my spirit stirs inside of me won't let me be Lauren's words stir me her guitar she sings the song emergency calamity hypocrisy spiritually adultery we're guilty why can't we see suffering for eternity if our sins we don't set them free it's almost three 911 emergency calamity destroying the best of me until I see the hypocrisy constantly he's reigning on his territory y'all attempts at destroying God's glory conflict of history prophecy battling my body constantly won't let me be it's almost three in time we be because of the history of sin destroying eternity from the beginning eternal battling of offspring this is the outworking of the sin in me. God's fighting the evil one through me. I'm his offspring and you. Time set in place just to do this very thing. 911 emergency calamity. Which side if you please? Do you want to be almost 315? Which side if you please? Will you be choosing a verdict? The seed of a woman will bruise the heel. Prophecy. God thinking. Speaking of what will be. Speaking time into place. Time into place. We're caught in time. In this place called in time, don't let your mind race. This is time. Get my rhyme. Time created for the battle because of sin. Think of its origin. Time is a thing that God had to bring only a course in his ring of eternity. 911 emergency calamity. We're in the middle. Why can't we see? No hierarchy is what we need to care for the needy. Why can't we see that selfishly it's not what to be? Lying, destroying, prying, idolatry, adultery, killing, bribing, all the working of this territory and time. Stop, repent, what are your thoughts? Repent, what's in your heart? Repent, don't lie to yourself. Repent, we all need to repent. 911 emergency calamity. Start studying the Magi saying, prophecy is what that be. Peace won't be, peace we won't see. I said, peace won't be in this territory of time. It's ending, it's ending this time. 911 emergency calamity in society of debauchery loathingly is what we be. Check the prophecy and you will see. Be holy, be holy to the degree of doing it righteously, walking straight. You will be understanding. Going on 330, repent, radically changing your life that be too holy. Praying regularly, fanatically, lovingly. 911 emergency wake up call. Calamity. We should be purposely preparing for battle. Deny your body, the flesh that be. Don't listen to society carnally, wrongfully. It's the enemy of the truth. Let the truth be told. The history of society is a mystery to the majority. Wasteland, Satan has wasted the land. We must take a stand. No peace to release. We're in battle. Press release. We're in battle. Time is short. 911, emergency, wake up, call calamity in this society. Why can't we see? Viola Llewellyn is a director with Praxis Asset Management and managing partner. She leads investor communications, marketing, and business development efforts for both firms. Ms. Llewellyn brings valuable access via her business and political connections in industries such as energy, petroleum, agribusiness, construction, the legislature, education, and banking. Ms. Llewellyn has over 15 years of experience in project management and consulting from the technology and government sectors in the United States. She was instrumental in building a $50 million hedge fund where she led investor communications, industry associations, PACs, and asset management divisions. 
Ms. Llewellyn is an award-winning entrepreneur and has been honored by MEA Magazine and Global Women's Magazine for her achievements in business and her contribution to women in global business. She's been a speaker at Howard University and Alabama State University. President Obama's White House initiative on HBCUs has recognized her as a contributor to the development of emerging markets, diaspora business development, and cross-African, African-American student collaboration. Of recent, Ms. Llewellyn has taken on the role of columnist with Queens Magazine in Ghana and PG Suite Magazine in Maryland. Viola Llewellyn, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Hello there. <laughs> Hi, Viola. Welcome I to the show. I had to pause for a minute. I thought, I've never actually heard myself spoken about, and I'm like, I must meet that chick. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael. How are you? I am great. How are you? I am very good. It's a pleasure to be on your show, and it's an honor to have followed behind Monda. She was incredible. Really, oh. really enjoyed her. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure... Um, She'll, she'll come on later on, and um, she'll appreciate those kind words of yours. But you have quite the resume. And, um, Thank you. you. You're not actually listening on your computer at this time, are you? No, I certainly oh, am not. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. But um, tell us a little bit about how you found yourself as a director of Praxis Asset Management Company. Well, that's as ex as accidental as my uh, arrival in this country. Um, mm. Yeah. And to tell the story back to front, I came to the United States on vacation, and I just never left. So I feel <laughs> as if I'm on an extended vacation. But I had had a wonderful career, um, always finding myself as the sidearm to other powerful individuals building businesses and um being a cog in that particular machine, I had no idea how much I had learnt and how much mentoring I had absorbed until one Tuesday I got up from my desk and thought, I think I'd like to go home and do this for myself. Not quite sure, but I feel led and I think it will happen. I remember my husband looking at me and just saying, well, if you're absolutely sure, I'm behind you and I'm, I'm grateful to Vincent for that. So I... Uh, started to take on some consultancy roles and as I began to read more and more about where is the pointy edge of the spear pointing to, I began to realize that um, I'm part of the solution and part of the problem having been born in the UK with Cameroonian parents and a love and an understanding of Africa in general and Cameroon in particular and then realizing that I had this phenomenal background in finance and consulting and business it didn't take long for me to put the pieces together, and I met my business partner, Marvin Cole, and he was putting a fund together, and I'd had all of this back-office experience and assisted with the creation of a $50 million investment hedge fund. And we sat down together and we built Praxis from the ground up, and the rest is history. Wow, what a story. Thank you. And tell us, because you're here to educate us a little bit about the African diaspora as well as um, the emerging markets in Africa and how Americans should be really focused on this and, and not letting this go unnoticed. Yeah, you know, as I've been spending time recently traveling in different regions, um, you begin to see a particular pattern is emerging Everybody says oh, Africa's open for business. It always actually has been. But what's been marketed to Africa has either been aid or some quasi-version of something substandard that's meant to be a palliative for 
keeping people where they are to mm. some degree, and it's a very easy package to buy. But the point that I, I want to make in answer to your comments there, Michael, is that there is a strong, educated, brilliant, savvy consumer base in Africa that is no longer wanting to rely on uh, government arrangements for subsidy, and they are looking to other parts of the world to connect. And when I think about people like myself who have been born in the West and, and have African parents and understand business, and you start to see that there is a gap to be serviced where there, is, there are pitfalls and there are successes, but there is something to be serviced here. And for the American public, there's a couple of things they need to be aware of. Um, Africa is very much looking forward to having America as a fully-fledged partner and an alternative to some of the offerings that come in and out of the continent. But more importantly, what I notice is that Africans are very interested in African-Americans separately. Mm. Mm. And there is so much Afrophobia, regardless of color, in understanding how to embrace Africa as a phenomenal market force. But I've found that by spending time in historical black colleges and universities and now pairing up with Parker Group Consulting with, along with what Praxis does, there is an opportunity to really uh, push through some of that Afrophobia and do some really excellent business. And that's really where we are. You know, you bring up an interesting point because a lot of African Americans think that Africans want nothing to do with them, and um, there's, of course, it's a misconception. But what is being done to to help to bridge that um, divide and help people to understand that that's really um, not the case? I've seen a number of things happening, and the first thing that I noticed isn't even business-related. The nexus of hip-hop has created a conglomeration of African infusion into some of the most feared, revered, and reviled musical forms here in the United States, the, the, the presence of hip-hop. And, and the guest that comes on behind, I'm sure, will talk to that. But there is also the fact that African Americans are beginning to travel more, and with the diaspora over here, we all look the same. So the intermingling has created uh, some very organic opportunities to know and understand each other, the ability to leave Africa and go to a historical black college and university, for example, has always had its prestige along with any of the other Ivy Leagues. So you start to get an exchange of ideas and a meeting of the minds that starts is always the beginning of an entrepreneurial activity. You know, and it's always music. Music bridges um, cultures in so many different ways. And mm -hmm. you almost see it as a process now of amending, too. Um, so tell us a little bit about the various opportunities with um, African Americans and how can they possibly find their way into an opportunity that sort of benefits them as well and that they can really find a great interest in. Yes, absolutely. Across the industries and sectors, for example, here in the United States, um, with the time that I've spent, with the White House and their initiatives on HBCUs, you'll notice that Obama has made quite an effort to try to push the STEM initiatives, which are science, technology, engineering, and math. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, there has been a history within the United States where there is a concentration of, let's say, certain socioeconomic groups, including black people, who do not always get the best access to world-class 
tutoring in those subjects from a very early age, and now that they're trying to push it, what you will probably realize is that with Africa's mineral and natural resources and the need to develop those resources, there is a natural bridge being built for this particular group of individuals to find themselves connecting to Africa at the highest level of industry all the way down to what is also uh, always a very good socioeconomic driver, the small, medium, and, and enterprise sectors. So oil and gas, Africa is, is going to end up being one of the greatest producers of this, and whether or not America moves away from fossil fuels won't be that important after a while. Um, the need to create alternative energy sources and African-Americans being able to participate that, and, and I'll even just blanket it as America in general. You look even into the Caribbean where there is another nexus of, of, of contact, and you look at Trinidad and Tobago, which is not widely known. They're one of the four leaders in technologies and, and turnkey operations within the oil and gas industry. When they look at um, mining, and I know, for example, Praxis themselves are working with a gentleman, Dr. Akwaku, in the New York area, who has asked us to craft an investment opportunity into the, the mining of salt on a renewable and sustainable basis. There is also the consumables front and work that Praxis has done with Ken and Dana Settle, who have the KVEL line of products, which is an interesting story in itself in that there are African-Americans who have been creating and manufacturing products 50, 100 years, and the opportunity to bring some of the best of breeds from the product offerings of African-Americans and market them directly to Africans in the hair, beauty, mm. consumables products. Um, I can go straight into the banking sector. The African banking scene is uh, quite an interesting arena. I, I'll say neither good nor bad about it. But this is another area where America can bring some of their their interest, knowing that the banking system here in the United States is a little bit in, the, in decline. If, if Americans in general are looking for ways in which to push their skill set into a new emerging market, that's exactly where it needs to be. Mm. With the middle class becoming large cash-based spenders, what you will typical, typically see is the, the building of houses, and then you'll see a secondary market for selling those houses, which will start to bring mortgage products. And I remember hearing Monda talk about the fact that she had been in that industry. Well, many African-Americans moved into the, the real estate business. What do they do with themselves now that that market is constricted? You should be looking overseas, and Africa is, hasn't even got proper mortgage um, products in some areas. And then, of course, you're going to get insurance products that are going to follow after that. So whatever uh, trajectory that you've seen in this country, that's the same tra trajectory that is going to be accelerated, not even adopted uh, within Africa as an available marketplace for those who see the need to, to service the gap. Wow. And, and tell us a little bit about your role in that. How does practice practice help people to be able to communicate and um, have hands-on with some of these opportunities? Yes. Um, there are a number of ways in which we've done that. Of course, um, there is just the pure connecting and networking and marketing amongst like-minded individuals or going through some of the economic development corporations from state to state right in this local area. 
I would say that we got one of our first most important starts via Elizabeth Crittenden over at the Prince George's County Economic Development Corporation. They have an Africa trade desk. So any African-American or any American anywhere that is looking to find out whether there are sister, con sister countries or sister states or sister towns to associate with, that's always a very good idea. But we create products and develop consultancy um, modules that work in those countries and speak to individuals who we know may have um, an investment mandate that would fit the products that we see as working in Africa, mm -hmm. or we may work with individuals who are looking to get into a sector, connect them not always through governments, but we try to move more towards the B2B aspect of business mm. connectivity. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there is really just putting the word out there and working with people like yourself who very kindly give us a platform to explain that, hey, there's something going on in a place where people look just like you where you have an opportunity to to take advantage of what I always lovingly call the gap. Yeah. Wow. And that's not because I'm English and I, I'm referring to mind the gap at Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's really funny, Viola. Um, just as you said, you connected with me via um, LinkedIn and mm -hmm. um, gave you a call. And next thing you know, we have this amazing conversation. We just really hit it off oh, right away. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's interestingly enough, I can see how um, people would gravitate towards you and how you're able to um, sort of create these relationships and be able to, you know, be the facilitator as well, because that's just an all a part of your personality, just just naturally. Yeah. Well, thank you. And facilitation, I think, is the most one of the most powerful words that I know. The ability to grant via the power of yes or the, the power of no, but do it this way, has, is, it can never be overstated. And when we're working with the, the Parker Group Consulting, one of the first things that they wanted to find out as we decided to partner together was how can we take some of the talent and the skill sets and the learning management structures that they're developing into facilitating that sector of the African market that is now going to start coming into their own as world-class CEOs, or how can we link with universities here using technology to create master's programs, entrepreneurship programs, and just that whole technology and knowledge transfer and the creation of data pools, because Africa has not always had the opportunity to record information in a way that can be utilized on a value basis. But as you start to see an explosion in technology modules, applications, and some of the things that we're building, we're soon going to start seeing some very solid quantification that can be used um, on a broad level and even at the retail level. And that, going back to one of the things that we talked about, Michael, was what we've done with the Diaspora Investment Funds, which is making it possible for the everyday American that has an understanding of what role the diaspora plays in entrepreneurship to be able to invest directly from their IRA accounts, for example, or their pension funds, because less than 2% of the average uh, investment portfolio is represented by Africa, and people wonder, well, yes, Africa's open for business, but how on earth does the average Joe or the individual, let's say, from Kenya who would love to go back and help their country do that without affecting extremely, excruciatingly tightened household budgets? 
So mm-hmm. people have to start finding creative, accessible ways and leveraging technology to speed up and follow along some of those remittance patterns that we've seen. Wow, wow. And, and it sounds like you guys really have a a great process, um, a great program going. And um, tell us a little bit, because I believe you have one of your technology experts with you. Um, is that what? Yes. <laughs> and this will be um, Glenn Bolton, or should I be calling him um, Daddy-O? <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Bolton, welcome to I guess, I guess that how old you are. Oh, dude, I'm I'm out there. I mean, that's a sonic man. I was there from the beginning. <laughs> Welcome to a measure of truth, and just tell us hey, a little man, bit thanks. about your background and and um, what you've done in the music industry to familiarize our listeners with you. Well, my my background is um, I, you know, I, I started off in the music business. I started rapping about 1979. I was, always into music as a kid, born in 61. I was always into music as a kid, um, you know, always loved it. When I first heard hip-hop and the way it sounded, like on these tapes that came from the Bronx, it was really, really interesting to me. I thought I want to do that. So I always had wrote poetry, and I just started researching it, hanging out at some of the clubs, and I got good at it, put together a little group. We won a contest in 1982. Signed a record deal the next year and then went on to make records pretty much from the years of, uh, I think we put our first record in 85, finished about 91, and then I did a solo record in 93. But I think more importantly, for my history in the music business, along that time, Stetson Sonic for me was like a university. So I, I learned everything. I cut my teeth there. I learned how to produce records. I learned the history of the music business. I learned the in and outs of the music business. So it allowed me to become a music producer at the same time and then consequently after that become an executive at, at Universal. So I've worked with some of the bigger names in music, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Barry White, Mary J. Blige, etc. Um, pretty much all the way across the board. I've done everything but country, which I absolutely love now that I'm in the South. Um, so I'm trying to hook up with Jason Aldean because he's actually from Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, you got to check out the show I did with Saddle Brown, too, who's an African-American country-western singer oh, yeah. you will not believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm familiar. Oh, awesome. <laughs> well, um, just tell us a little bit about your role in technology. How did you transition from um, being well, in the music industry into just strictly well, technology? I've been downloading MP3s pre-Napster. Um, I had a few friends, um, actually one brother who was actually in, he, he he's a Trinidadian brother, he actually lives in Africa now. His name is Lenny Duncan. He moved to Nigeria to actually work on some of those emerging markets that we were talking about. But Lenny is a genius. Um, mm. In the 80s, he was actually called a Black Bill Gates. And really? And the first person to sell Microsoft you know how you use pens to write on computers? Yeah. He created those. They were called Lenny wow. pens in the beginning, and he, and he sold them. So when I met Lenny, I met him through a friend of mine that's a conga player, this kid that played on Earth, Wind, and Fire, and all of these other records. And he was like, you just got to meet my friend Lenny because he's doing this thing with technology, and I know you would get it, but I don't quite get what's going on. And I, I hung out with him, and he just kind of opened up my world. Like, you know, I was kind of messing around with computers because of the music, but not really anything connected to the web or any of those things. So from that, um, I, I learned that, you know, there was 
these things called MP3s that were music files out there. Now, I, I was a kid who bought eight tracks and 45s. So it was amazing to me that I could actually download a file. Now, at that time, mind you, there was no such thing as broadband. Um, we were on, you know, dial-up modems. It took all night to download <laughs> one file. But I was just amazed that I could download a file. So I knew that there was a switch coming. So I began to just, you know, when I when I want to know about something, I just read. So I began to just read. I, I subscribed to two magazines that kind of really did it for me, which was Fast Company and Wired. I stayed on top mm-hmm. of that. In the beginning of Fast Company, actually in stories, I got Fast Company from the from the first issue. In the beginning of Fast Company, they actually, when the people used to write the articles, they actually used to leave their email addresses. Wow. So I used to, so I started talking to Guy Kawasaki and all these technology guys about what was going on and, and the connection. And this is way before, because I had an MP3 player way before Apple even decided to make the iPod. And this is way mm. before iTunes was dialing at home. You know, all iTunes was was a, a piece of software to connect your iPod to your computer. And, and and I said, man, this thing is about to switch. So I got really, really interested in it, and I just kept educating myself, just kept educating myself. The break for me in technology really came through social media. I was one of those guys on the front side of social media wishing that something like this was available. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, with email, I can't really do it. If I don't have a person's email address and if a person doesn't have computer access, then, you know, I can't get in touch with them. And another person that was really influential in my jump into technology was actually Colin Powell's son when he was the head of the FCC. Really? Because he had started an effort called DigitallyDivide.gov. I'm I'm a a kid sitting in Brooklyn. I wasn't a kid, but I'm a guy sitting in Brooklyn, and I'm watching this guy wanting to connect underprivileged youth in America to the internet, and I said, "Man, this is amazing." Now, you know, all of those efforts have totally changed because we have broadband now, and the concept of not having access, and, and none of us saw mobile coming. Like none of us saw mobile coming, so we had we had no idea this 4G thing was going to put the internet in somebody's pocket. So, you know, <laughs> at this time, we're all thinking that you know you got to be in front of a desk to access this, and you need to have a dial-up number to do it. So he was trying to do all of these things, including doing like free internet and tried to do some things with net zero to try to get some of that in underprivileged tones. But I just loved this concept of being able to connect my people to what was going on, right? Because I saw all of these things coming up, and I'm like, who's going who's gonna to tell people? So I came up with the idea for a magazine called the Urban Digital Digest, which never got off the ground, but what I ended up doing is turning that into a, a web series that you can actually see online called Get Your Digital On. And then I just, you know, I, just kept, I, kept, I kept knocking at it, knocking at it, knocking at it. And then a couple of years ago it opened up for me a little, well, actually four years ago it opened up for me a little bigger because I, I had to go work for a software company, so that was, that was huge for me. I was with mm-hmm. developers every day. I'm in heaven now. Like, oh, right, like, right. Hey, can this happen? Can you do this? <laughs> what if you do it? You know, I don't write code, but I know what I'm saying. And they're like, right. hey, you know, this is great ideas. And then, um, you know, I, I, I started pushing myself towards the lecture circuit. So now, so I speak at these tech conferences. I still speak from a hip-hop perspective because I come from hip-hop, 1979, 78 hip-hop, cool work, man, but I see the connection. So I always, when I speak, 
I always try to, you know, connect them all. And I, I mostly speak to an audience dealing with, you know, emerging markets and dealing with how to kind of connect those. I'm always dealing with either people that just got out of college or people who have been in the workforce, um, you know, a, a few a few years and are trying to make this decision as to whether or not they're going to go, you know, entrepreneur, do I go to the big company? And, and so I try to provide some answers and the solutions in there, and I try to do it through technology and show them how this concept of being connected was not something that I had in my beginning and that they could deal with those things. And, you know, just really mostly four things, speed, connection, turnkey, and, and the next level of, 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 of do-it-yourselfers. And I try to show them how all of those elements can make a difference in that decision that they want to make as far as their work experience. Wow. See, I, I think you can tell by the fact that I just let you talk that you just said a mouthful. I mean, you really just put it down. Uh, are, your, are your lectures available on TED? Uh, I did a TED, I did one TED talk, um, and that one was actually interesting. I did a TED talk called "What If Hip Hop Was Measured from a Global Perspective." Wow! And that um, that is um, yeah, you can find it. I'm I don't know exactly where it is on the TED site. I usually just send people to like a YouTube link or just say you know Daddy O TED Hip Hop Global. It usually comes up. Um, but that was interesting because I, I, one of the things that's interesting, and Viola talked about it earlier, is that what people don't realize about hip-hop, we always look at American hip-hop, and then we kind of look at the last 10 years, which, you know, some of it is fruitful. Not all of it is good. I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest about that. But we don't realize the effect that we have, meaning when I say we, I just mean hip-hop, the effect that we have globally. Because mm-hmm. in, outside of the United States, we're the freedom fighters. You know, cats are not rapping about chains and, 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 you know, drinks and girls. Cats are rapping about being free and the, the 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 oppression that they're going through and all of those particular things. So I tried to, in that TED Talk, um, explain and look at hip-hop from a global perspective, which was really eye-opening for a lot of the people that were in my audience because they were like, we never knew this. They Like, they never knew hip-hop had an anti-violent origin. And, you know, if you listen to hip-hop in the last 10 years, you would think, you know, it all started with gunplay and all of that. And it, it has an anti-violent origin. I mean, cats started rapping and dancing against each other because they wanted to put down the guns and they got tired of fighting in the Bronx. Right. And it was about the stories of their life, the life outside of the things that they were afraid of, but the things that they enjoyed, the things that they were proud of about their neighborhoods. It was, it was oh, a totally different concept. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we're further enough down the road that people may not remember your date of birth, but, uh, yeah, we were born the same year. <laughs> oh, good. That's a good year to be born, man. Oh, good yeah, year. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's a good year. It, you know, I, it's I, I, um, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to tell you, I sort of fell into technology myself. I mean, I, I built my first computer in 1996. Before that, I started programming by accident because at the first government job I had, I couldn't type as fast as everyone else. So I created <laughs> macro codes to be able to do my work for me. Next wow. thing you know, I was putting them together into programs and training other people how to use them. And um, wow. you know, from that point on, I was I was lost. And I'll, I'll tell you something; all the geeks will appreciate that. I've got some geek listeners, so I'll throw this out there. You remember <laughs> Wolfenstein 3D? I do. 
Yeah. And um, when I first saw that, I knew the future was here. And I lost right. my mind. Yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah, you know, I, we definitely have to talk offline. I was telling, you know, Viola that I don't generally like to talk to my guests before the show because there's that camaraderie that comes around and, you know, we bond. But, dude, we're going to be best friends. I could just tell, man. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready, brother. I'm ready. I, I, I appreciate I appreciate the work. I got a chance to, um, once I knew I was on the show, got a chance to go blog talk, listen to some of the other work that you do. So I, I definitely appreciate your work, man. Oh, wow. that That's great. That's great. And um, Viola, just tell us a little bit about how you and Daddy O work together. What did, what did each of you bring to the table that brings a synergy that helps you guys to um, be able to do what you do? Um, I think our synergy is built on a shared belief and platform that there are patterns and connections that are not always obvious but are really very, very powerful. Um, He's very analytical, and I have a certain amount of that, but I also have a way of, of taking what is random and trying to recreate it into something that makes sense. His standpoint on globalization and um, digital access has so much foundation and importance in what I try to do and deliver on as an entrepreneur and on a globalization basis for both the diaspora here and Africans back home. And when we got together with our other business partners, we found that everybody had their own silo of of activity and excellence that just makes the whole thing hang together. So he and I also have a great love of music. And when I found out he had been working with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I was trying yes. to enable a way to <laughs> run away with the Red Hot Chili Peppers because I absolutely love them. But we both love similar music. Plus, he spent a lot of time um, understanding the music scene in Britain, which has a flavor that is incredibly unique and makes mm-hmm. a big contribution yeah. to the world. And with the amount of with the Africans that are in the UK and what they do along with the Jamaicans and every other West Indian flavor, it, it helps to create a massive network of understanding and translating the world both musically which is everyone's language and with technology which is a second language for everyone as well so he and i we bonded quickly but i am jealous of the friendship you're building with him <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny and uh, it's interesting though that you mentioned um the uk and especially when i first arrived in london i heard music that i thought was old music but it was new music from oh, yeah. the 60s Red Groove sound yeah yeah and then there was um their own style of um house music as well and there was so much going on i was i was in london in the 80s uh 88 but a perfect um, time yeah yeah and and it was so much going on so many um independent labels out there as well as up and coming um major labels and the music was just all over the place you could find something every day that was a little different. And um, I remember going to, and this is interesting, I went to a house party in Brixton, and you expect to hear just one type of music, but it was still all over the place, and everyone loved it. It was like everyone was into listening to different types, different genres of music and enjoying it. You know, I don't know, and I hope to goodness I don't, offend the the general populace here, but I think that America has done an overly efficient job at marketing generic items. Mm. 
Mm. So you get homogenization where there really should be massive flourishing variety. And it makes mm -hmm. it very difficult because it's such a consumer-based society for people to try to seek out what they truthfully like. And that's really very, very hard. Um, I know that when I first came to this country, I had a very difficult time of buying clothes because things are cut for a broader demographic and are not as individual. And I think that's why when you look at imagery, you can always tell, oh, that person's not American or something. Or when I tried to buy records, which they're not called anymore, and, and I'm mentioning American musicians who were big there, and people are looking at you and going, uh, no idea who that is. So homogenization in America has... Um, has gone maybe a little bit too far, and I believe this country is ready for individual variety. I mean, you look at people like yourself, Michael, with this show, and what Glenn does in trying to create a, a network of differentiation. I think we might be able to turn the corner and get people to like things individually. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I think there is a lot of that, and the Internet helps, especially with apps out there like um, Pandora. and. Yeah. Um, Spotify, and um, I, I think I'm pronouncing it right, but probably not. But <laughs> there's so many You're different ways that people... pronouncing it the way Viola would say it. Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, um, I, I think this gives young people an opportunity to explore different types of music because it sort of brings it in. I think there's an algorithm that um, goes beats per minute plus um, some of the content in the title and tries to merge it together. But a lot of times you do get different genres of music because of it. Oh, yeah. I, I, I like um, I, I like where it's going. I mean, we, we, we in the digital area just, um, you know, we call it uh, recommendation engines and all of those particular things. So, we yeah, we those work. I think I think it works. I think, I think the concept of... of, of some of the smaller things being able to at least see the light of day will make a difference on the overall. Because I'm, I say to young kids all the time, when I was making records in in '89, um, and you know we signed to an independent label in New York, the only connection that I had with my fans was a a, a bag that stood at my record company called Fan Mail, mm. and the bottom line was, you know. I say it all the time. It might have been worse that I answered it that than when I didn't answer it because when we answered it, this is real talk. We answered it with a rubber stamp. Yeah. So somebody could have been saying my house is burning down. Right. And all they got back from me was thanks for your interest and you know whatever this really generic answer where you fast forward to 2013 and you've got all of these mediums and you know Twitter pages and Facebook pages and. Google Plus, you know, LinkedIn and print feed. I mean, you keep going. So you can kind of talk to people and, you know, what they get from Pinterest and Instagram and all of these particular things. And then I really believe that the next group of social networks are going to be mobile. So I'm looking at PATH and, and a few of these other, um, you know, emerging technologies. And so, you know, there's a connection there with a fan that was basically unheard of in my day and time. Even right. in Detroit, if I, you know, there was no way to make a blast to Detroit and say, hey, Detroit, I'm on my way. You know, mm -hmm. there's no way to do that. I, if I got in town, if I got on the radio station, I did it. But then, you know what, if the people wasn't listening to the radio at the time that I was on, then they, they still wouldn't hear that I was there. 
You know, it's totally different in terms of what I can do. It's like coming on the show tonight. I can get on my Twitter page. I can get on my Facebook page. I can say, hey, I'm going to be on. I can send them to your page. I can I can do all of this stuff that I just had no way to do in the past. So I think I think I think it makes for some things, and I do I think it's, it, it's got to be a long way coming because you still got to change the way people think before anything would happen and one of the deep parts about today and music and especially what what Viola was talking about with with just the with the American thought process is so based on you know it's almost anti long tail right mm-hmm. so it's really really you know star superstar star superstar star superstar and 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 until we kind of shift some of that they they'll still look the same which is why on YouTube this, the, the the number one YouTube videos are still the ones that are most popular every place else. Right. And so you would know it was a shift if the number one videos on YouTube was anti-radio, right? <laughs> Where people are literally saying like, you know what? I don't want to hear that. I want to go over here and hear that. And it's right. kind of sort of the same thing on Pandora right now. The Little mm. Wayne ch- channel is bigger than the Rasan Patterson channel. Mm. I mean, it's more the two chains channel. You know what I mean? It's still so we still in in this country we still have a, a very popular minded situation, and a lot of that has to be changed. But I mean, I'm I'm willing to take the jump, and I'm I mean, you out here every week, so I know you there, and there's a few of us there. I mean, Mary Armstrong is there. There's a few people in in the space that are really pounding at it, and I think I think we can continue to do it. We just gotta we gotta stay diligent. Yeah, and, and the way that we can get out there ahead of the curve is to look at the technology and understand what young people want. And, um, for instance, the on-demand era is here, and everybody wants to be able to hear about it and then go right to it. They don't want to say, oh, really? You know, tell me about it. No, they want to see it for themselves. And with, you know, your phone being able to pull up the YouTube videos and also to google and find a song or any type of information that you're looking at any story um and the other part of it is too is people want to be able to interact with the information that they receive and everyone that leaves that out that's why the newspapers are dying right now the the Uh, newspaper yeah let me i'll let you make your point because i think i know where you're going with that as well but the newspapers were in a situation where they had a captive audience. You were reading their paper, so you had to stick with their opinion. Now, if you're reading an article on the Internet and you don't like what they're saying, guess what? You can Google and find another one that gives oh, the information absolutely. you want. Absolutely. And go you know, ahead and funny. make your point. You, you use, you use the exact – I mean, you, you hit it right on the – you hit the nail right on the head. I, I, I'm working with – you know, I, I still work with musicians, right? So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm working with a, a, an artist that's signed to a major label, you know, basically golden childish type of artist, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he got an $800,000 deal out the, out the gate, got a production deal from the record company, got signed by one of the biggest names in the industry, and got a publishing deal on top of that, Wow. right? So mm-hmm. I'm working, and we're working to do a social media strategies. And, you know, mm-hmm. the very beginning of it, you know, it was cool because, you know, everybody's eager. And then we kind of run into this little glitch, right? Mm. And I explained to him what we're missing is the concept of what we call interaction. Right. You can't oh, that's the magic just blast. Word. 
Yeah, you can't just blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Facebook's a great tool. You know, LinkedIn, great tool. You know, Twitter, great tool. All of these platforms, YouTube, great tool. I mean, it's video. Um, but you have to interact, and this is what I'm, I'm, I'm building off of what you were saying. This is what we, and, and, you know, that even kind of brings in what we're talking about with Parker Group and some of the trainings that we do, is actually finding out what that behavior is and figuring out what people like. Mm-hmm. Right? Some people like to read it. Some people like to hear it. Yeah. I, I mean, think I, what I, they're I, looking I, for I now. hate audio books. I hate <laughs> audio books. I absolutely hate them. But then I have friends that live by them and say, man, right. I would have never read a book. If you know, if well, not never read a book, but you know, I'm, I'm reading books because I can get them on an audio book. And then you got some people that that like it in a different way. But I think mm-hmm. that finding out what people want, especially with these young people, you're right. That is exactly the key because they they the one thing that this medium, this social media kind of technology thing, gives them is a voice. And they do want to interact. And they don't want you to just say, I tell these young kids all the time, if you use Facebook like it's the new street team, people are going to unfriend you. If every time they look at your Facebook page and all you say is, new mixtape out, check me out, they're going to unfriend you. That's not really what they want. They kind of want you because they know now they can get you. In the past, they couldn't get you. Mm -hmm. I tell them all the time, I said, if me, LL, and Chuck D had Facebook, y'all probably wouldn't have a job right now. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine being in some, I I can tell you story upon story when we're making these Public Enemy albums, when we're in the studio making the De La Soul, you know, Three Feet High and Rising. I mean, if those stories were to get out, if we had Facebook and YouTube on our tour buses, I don't know if these young guys would have even been able to get in. You know, you guys are talking about something that is um, very close to my heart. And I know, Dario, you and I work together every single day as we create different tools that are leveraged off technology, apps, and mobility. And one of the things that we talked about recently was the the appetite of emerging markets, both African and Caribbean, to consume content probably much faster than they do in the West. And for the longest time in the past, many Africans were very information hungry and went to great lengths to acquire it to the point that their their depth of knowledge base was probably many feet deeper than the average Westerner. And in the times that I've spent abroad and you see the speed with which people are using their cell phones for information acquisition – and and to leverage that information and to silo it and to manage it. And they're becoming really, really innovative. And I love the fact that at Parker Group Consulting, some of the things that we're doing is to is to leverage off that trend. And they and the young people themselves are just as up to speed as their compatriots. I get text messages and Facebooks from my nephews, Wellsan and all the rest of them in Cumber, and they are generally ahead of me in their requests for stuff or for for products or spare parts or understanding what is going on. And I wonder, with a billion people on the African continent, how are we supposed to keep up with the, with the demand to feed information and tools to process information? You know, and, and the great thing about it is because the smartphone now is so small and so powerful, it, it mm-hmm. makes that access mobile. The the whole thing, I, I, we talked a little bit about social digital media, my um, company that I'm hoping to be able to release very soon that, you know, content 
is being produced now for the Internet. It's bypassing a lot of different other mediums. It's going directly to the Internet, and that's where it's most successful. And it has to be produced that way. And when it is, it can go anywhere. And if what you produce can be heard on every device from your TV all the way down to your cell phone, you can be successful and your message will be heard. And there's also a process built into that I like to call touch and respond because that's what everyone wants. They want to be able to touch, but they want you to respond to them as well. And if you can find a way to do that successfully, you will find the the listenership or the uh, audience that you're looking for and whatever your venture is. And that and you you're absolutely right and I think that that, that that's a direct um a, a, you know that 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 plays into the direct a- access to emerging markets because one of the things that we haven't had the ability to do uh, you know I went to I've been to Africa on like you know a big tour and I mean the response was you know ridiculously incredible like I mean I can't even I can't even you know it's 90,000 people I can't I can't wow. even tell you how how incredible it was. I mean, you know, it was a different level of getting mobbed because the kids wasn't trying to knock me over. It was just, you know, they just wanted to know. They just wanted to meet us. They just wanted to talk. I mean, we stayed in touch with a, a few of them that ended up, you know, being <laughs> refugees later on in their life. And even though they went to Amsterdam, we still stayed in touch through letters and telephones and all of those. And so they've always wanted this type of access like Viola was talking about earlier, to us in this particular, you know, stateside, but never really had that kind of access, especially the kids. You know, you you, you know, I, I, the, the adults may be a little different, and I'm with the adults. Like a lot of times the adults are a little standoffish, and I understand why, you know, they, they're standoffish. I tell my friends all the time that were born somewhere else, I say, man, you guys are blessed to be able to have a place called home. You know, I'm an American. I was born here. I love what I am, and I love being in this country, but it's tough sometimes when you kind of see the fabric breaking apart and breaking apart and breaking apart. You know, when you got a place you call home, my wife's Haitian. You know, I love the way they live because, you know, it's a, tight, it's a tight-knit culture. You know, this, this is what the adults do. This is what the kids do. I love that. We mm-hmm. grew up like that, but then we lost a lot of that. Know, right. But they've always these kids have always wanted to be able to touch and and interact and all of these particular things and and so some of this technology gives us the ability if we use it right and I know the right some people is a relative but it's not to me I, I believe in absolutes but you know if we use it right we can we can make some things happen and and we can we can find some really really brilliant minds I think that that's the other thing that we really have to concentrate on, especially when we begin to talk talk about, you know, branding this thing outside of the diaspora, is that, you know, America's a nice place, and, and, I, and I love being an American, but we're not the only brilliant people on the planet Earth. Right. And so this is a way you find your genius, right? I mean, I'm, I'm in the process of a, a, little proce- a, a little process I'm putting together, this open source recording thing, if you want to call it a label, you can, but it has nothing to do with what, <laughs> what Warner is or, Le- or or Tommy Boy was or whatever. But my mm-hmm. concept is to be able to blend all of these particular things. A guitar mm-hmm. player from Cameroon with a horn player from Italy and a drummer from America. Right. And you know what? You know what it's I'm- funny you should say that because I, I have a show on Fridays called Turn It Up. And that's uh-huh. what these artists are doing. They're meeting each other on the show. 
They've been oh, emailing absolutely. different tracks to one another and putting things together and having it mastered by someone else someplace else and putting it all on Reverb Nation. And, That's the um, way to go. When I first heard about these young guys, they they were more in the closet, so to speak, because they would produce content on their own and they would interact with their friends to hear it, but they weren't interacting with other people who were making music. So right. I said, why not create a platform where people can share, you know, studio tips? You know, what oh, what software are you absolutely. using? What type we're on of, it. We're yeah. on it. I yeah, mean, that's and, great. That's the way to go. That's the way to go. I mean, this is mm-hmm. where you find your your geniuses, right? right? Because, you know, these guys are these guys their mind is totally different than, you know, I, I don't mean to sound bad and I hope I, you know, you don't get backlash for this, but you know, different than a spoiled American. Mhm. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, some of the stuff that we have and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be facetious, but some of the stuff we have, you know, we take for granted. Absolutely. And so the way we deal is different. As well, I mean, as I spoke about this artist, it's really interesting that I'm do I do artist development, and so I'm working to develop this one guy that is signed to this major label and had these issues I'm talking about. And then I got we another only got about guy. 45 seconds. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you know what? I, I'll just give you my um, and I know Viola wants to do this too. But if people want to contact me, Twitter is the best way, and I'm at Professor Daddio on Twitter. Awesome. And go ahead and give us your information, Viola. Yes, I'm easily found at Prax Advisors. That's on Twitter and on Facebook as Viola Llewellyn or at uh, Praxis Adv- Management, uh, Asset Management there as well. Thank easily you found on the web. Both of you guys. And we're going to have you back on real soon. I just know it. As a matter of fact, uh, daddy we may have you on this Friday on Turn It Up if you're available. Look, special <laughs> I, thanks. I, I probably will be. Okay, special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham. You've been listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. But before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. And watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. Watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.